The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Season 2 of Students of Mind, the podcast where we aim to normalize conversations about mental health. Last season, we connected you with experts in the field of mental health to provide an understanding of topics and illnesses that may not have been easily accessible. This season, we will continue our learning journey together by not only speaking to experts, but also by listening to the voices and stories of real people who are living, surviving, and even thriving while also facing challenges with their mental health in their everyday life. This season, we want to hear your stories to get the full truth of what it's like to manage one's mental health and navigate living with mental illness. My name is Jade, and on today's episode, we will be sitting down with Daryl Stinson, a speaker, business coach, former Division I athlete, and suicide survivor. Daryl will be sharing the effects a career-altering injury had on his mental health, his journey through surviving multiple suicide attempts, the path he took towards healing, and the services and supports he provides today for athletes. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Today's guest is Daryl Stinson. Daryl is a speaker, pastor, entrepreneur, and suicide attempt survivor. As a former athlete, Daryl received a severe injury causing him to have to stop playing football and eventually leading to a deep depression and multiple suicide attempts. In our discussion, Daryl shares what it was like to experience each stage of his journey, how his experience has taught him so much about mental health, and the ways in which he uses his experience to connect with and help others.
Welcome, Daryl. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Me too. I think your story is really unique, so I'm excited to dive into that. Before we do, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, my name is Daryl Stinson. I am a speaker and a speaker coach. I primarily talk about mental health and high performance, uh, talking about the success habits that helped me become an elite athlete, as well as the mental health habits that helped me to rebuild my life after suicide. Wow, that was great. I feel like some people have such a hard time like figuring out how to present themselves, but that was like a really nice packaged way. So I can't be you. a speaker and a coach and not have yeah. a strategy. <laughs> and we can get into it a little bit more, but yeah, I wanted to make sure I pause and give you some room to talk because I can talk now. Great. So yeah, let's let's kind of just get into it. Um I know that you have a very unique and complex journey and so if you don't mind can you just talk about your journey of being an athlete and then going through your injury and then the mental health experience that you had after that yeah so for me I grew up as a smart kid uh my mother noticed that I was a very intellectual and so in the third grade she put me in accelerated learning classes which where I'm from in Jackson Michigan that meant that I was one of two black students in an all white class. And there was nothing wrong with this because it actually made me stand out. I was one of the smartest kids in the class. People uh, laughed at my jokes. They cheated off the, my test. They called me goon because I was like this goofy gooning looking guy. And I thought that since they liked me, that everyone in my school must like me. And one day I'm walking back from a bathroom break and I got that nasty wooden pass in my hand that we used to use as kids and I see a group of black students circled together kind of cracking jokes laughing and I'm like I'm gonna go over to them and I'm gonna get in on these jokes so I go over to them I'm like hey what's so funny nobody answers and I'm like man I know that they hear me so I speak up what y'all over there laughing about and just as soon as I was finishing that sentence one of the kids turned towards me and said your was funny white boy and they all erupted in laughter. And I couldn't understand why they were laughing at me. So I started to ask questions of why did they call me a white boy when I'm clearly black? And that's where I learned that I was known in our school as the black kid that quote unquote talks and acts white. And uh, what that did for me was created this deep rooted insecurity that who I was authentically wasn't enough to be liked or loved by other people. And so I started to change the way that I laughed, the, the music I listened to, the way that I dressed. I started like slowly but surely getting involved in more uh, street activity, all in an attempt to fit in with this community. And it worked. They embraced me. I got street cred. They called me a different type of goon because now I'm like tough street goon. And deep down inside, I knew it wasn't me who they were accepting. It was who I was pretending to be. And at the same time that all this is happening, this took a long, uh, about from the third all the way to like seventh, eighth grade for me to like completely lose sight of my identity. And then I found sports. I found out that sports kind of was the solution to the racial divide that I was feeling. So I didn't know if I should hang out with my white friends or my black friends. And so uh, sports enabled me to hang out with whoever I wanted to without any consequence or losing any status because everyone liked me for playing sports. And so sports became like this huge idol in my life because it not only did it 
uh, free me from having to choose between the racial groups in my community, but it also had a very lucrative promise with an NFL contract and NBA contract. And it was the way that I was going to get my family out of poverty and I was going to be successful and famous and be the hero. And I earned a division one scholarship to play football at Central Michigan University. And I'll never forget my my coach looking at me in the eye. It was me, uh, a guy by the name of Antonio Brown, who's arguably one of the best receivers in the league right now. And a running back, rest in peace, uh, Zerlon Tipton, who played for the Indianapolis Colts and uh, um, is no longer with us. And he's looking at us and he says, it's not a matter of if you guys are going to go to the NFL. It's just a matter of when. And so that like pump, like we were all excited and we're like, man, he's worked with a ton of NFL athletes. He wouldn't just say that. And we all knew where we were going to go. The problem is that I had to have surgery on my back because I pinched a nerve that caused my left leg to almost get paralyzed. And to make sort of a long story short, that led to an opioid addiction. I did come back and play after that, uh, but I did so at a cost to my mental, social, emotional health. I started selling drugs to cover the cost of my healthcare expenses and still was able to start because me hurt was better than the next guy fully healthy. But ultimately, my opioid addiction got so bad that I was taking so many pills to numb the pain to continue to play the game of football that my nose was bleeding because it was thinning my blood. And coaches noticed that something was going on. They kicked me off the team. And that's where I was forced to face the end of my athletic career. I wasn't prepared for the workforce. I didn't feel fulfilled by anything. I didn't think I had anything to offer besides sports. And so that led to a whole dark rope of depression. Let me pause there, see if there's any questions. Yeah, I think my first thought is, um, I guess just during your time while playing football on a team and experiencing the mental health implications of your surgery while being on the team, like what was that like? How did you navigate the symptoms you were experiencing um, and dealing with that while also having to do this super physical sport that takes a lot of time and energy. Yeah, I just sucked everything up and bottled everything in. I didn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell people how much pain I was in because they were going to terminate my liability waiver and not allow me to pursue my dreams of playing in the NFL. So if they knew that I was more injured than I actually was then I couldn't continue my career. So I hid that from them. I would take pain pillars. When I had back spasms, I would act like everything's okay. When I got bad reports, I would try to manipulate the healthcare system and hide it from them. Like I was taking these many pain steroid pills, not performance enhancement, but pain steroid pills to numb the pain to just continue to go out there. And as long as I was making plays and nobody was really catching on, then it wouldn't be an issue. And so I hid I hid the pain from people as far as the mental health battles. You know, you're not supposed to show weakness. I wasn't going to tell people that I was having thoughts about harming myself, about not wanting to be here on the planet because I was a quote unquote tough guy. And that's not what tough people are supposed to do. I don't believe that now. I actually think it, it takes more strength to be vulnerable than it does not to be. And so it's actually a tougher thing to share than it is to hold it in. But at the time, that was my mentality. And so I wasn't talking to my friends. I was just, you, you know, getting high and um, avoiding it and just pretending like everything was okay. 
And it's a warning for all athletes because when you, especially when you're at a level of Division One that that I was, uh, any time you have any type of success, uh, athlete or not, people oftentimes assume that since you're externally successful, that you're internally happy. And I wasn't. I was miserable. I didn't like myself. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what was going to happen if this wasn't going to pan out. I didn't feel like anybody was really for me. And I felt like the system was against me. They didn't give me the right rehabilitation I needed. So I just bottled all this stuff in. And it, it really was a like living two different lives. So, you know, one end, I was, you know, an athlete and charismatic and the life of the party with my friend groups. But when I go home and I'm by myself, I'm miserable. I'm not wanting to be here on the planet and I'm not opening up about these struggles. Is that something that's uh, relatively common for athletes or even just for football with injuries and mental health, I guess, kind of hiding the severity of it in order to be able to continue to play or to keep kind of like conflict with coaches down? Is that something that's common? I would say it is something that's common because athletes are taught not to show weakness and culturally, not just athlete specific, it vulnerability is still a concept that people are getting used to. Uh, you know, it's something about the American dream that I think made people just kind of not talk about the American struggle <laughs> and uh, people aren't speaking up. And that's why we're having a lot of mental health issues around around the globe, really. And uh, some of it, especially when you get into mental illness, which I have been labeled clinically depressed, I think I have a form of uh, ADHD. I haven't been clinically diagnosed, but uh, illness is is different because it's, there's a spectrum. But I know in some cultures, it's very taboo uh, to talk about that. They don't they don't see it the same way they do as like a getting the flu or having a physical type of illness. Um, but it, it it very much is the same. Your body's not producing something that it needs, and you need supplements or medication or a way to be able to uh, still function in a healthy way with that. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it did. So you said you your coaches realized that you were injured worse than you were, and you were obviously something was going on. So what happened after being kicked off the team? I was forced to face with a decision on where my life was going to head. I didn't feel prepared for the workforce. I knew I could be successful just by like applying my mind in the same like like mindset that I had as an athlete to be successful, but I didn't think that I would be fulfilled by anything else after sports. So that led to a lot of depression. So it was just a lot of getting high, being at home, not doing anything in my life, selling drugs, partying away. Uh, then the suicide attempts got worse and worse. So I started like just doing uh, very reckless behavior to to end my life. And um, the the only person I was confiding in at the time was a girlfriend who I had dated for four and a half years. And uh, she left me and got engaged to another man. And after that happened, that validated this insecurity that I had that I shared about earlier, that who I was authentically wasn't enough to be like they're loved by others. And so I was either going to go back to the street personality that I, I built up and continually continue to be inauthentic in life. I could no longer hide behind sports success. And so the the my girlfriend leaving me was proof that I wasn't enough and nobody really cared about me. And so I thought. And so um, I starved myself and ultimately... Uh, this led me to a psychiatric care facility in Detroit, Michigan. 
And it was there that everything changed for me. Uh, I found faith and I uh, got hope. I did some inner healing and I left that experience completely transformed and began this journey of trying to figure out who am I after sports? Yeah, I, I'm i wondering what your knowledge around um, mental health or even just depression before going through your experience and being in a psychiatric care facility. It wasn't a lot. I mean, I knew it was out there. Like I've heard the term depressed. Uh, I don't think I knew about any type of like low spectrum mental illness. I thought it was all schizophrenia. And like, so anytime I heard mental illness, I thought it was something like that. Um, and I very much was, you know, victim to believing in the stigmas of mental health. So I, it was kind of like, nah, you know, that's for crazy people, quote unquote. I don't believe that now, but that's what I thought. And uh, didn't really hear it talked about a lot, uh, probably because of who I was surrounded by. That's not something we talked about all the time. So unfortunately, I didn't really have much knowledge about it. Yeah, I feel like that's most people. That's that's what ends up happening is growing up. It's just not talked about. And then later in life, we kind of have more of these conversations. Right, right. Um, And you mentioned that while you were getting care at the psychiatric facility, you found faith. And I think faith and mental health and even religion and mental health can sometimes be very connected. Um, And so I'm wondering, how did faith help get you through what you were going through? It gave me hope that I didn't have. I'll I'll share the story with you, um, knowing that it's my experience. And if someone doesn't believe, uh, we can still be friends and we still be cool. It's all right. But uh, I was so I had just tried to starve myself to death. Um, My mother had convinced me uh, to allow her to take me to get help. I didn't really know what that meant because I was crying so long that my eyes were kind of swollen shut and I hadn't ate in like weeks, uh, anything substantial. And so like I wasn't in my right mind. And so I don't know where I thought she was taking me. I thought like I had no clue. I just know I just agreed because she was mom and she she takes me into this hospital and I'm laying on the hospital bed and this doctor comes in and he says, you know, why did you talk to me about what's going on? Why did you attempt to end your life? And I didn't want to answer those questions. That was causing me to face some pain that I didn't want to deal with. And so I just told him, just, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't want to be here. Just leave me alone. I just want to die. And he he kept trying and trying. And then uh, he eventually gave up. He left and he was going to go uh, fill out some additional paperwork to what I now know is to admit me upstairs into the psychiatric care facility uh, for a minimum of five days. And my mother was there at the time and a woman with green pants walked into the room. And I call her a woman with green pants because that's all I could see is out the slit of my eyes, this woman with green pants. And she comes in and she like wraps me in her arms and she's like, I don't know who you are and I don't even have jurisdiction to be back here in this part of the hospital. But God sent me back here to tell you that you need to say yes to him. And I was in my mind, I'm like, I don't know this lady. What is saying yes mean? What is that going to do? That's not going to heal my back. That's not going to bring my girlfriend back. Like, forget that. Like, I don't want to live. And I just pushed her away and said, leave me alone. I just want to die. This woman prayed for me, my mother said, for about 15 minutes. She left, said she was going to come back. 
And probably, I don't know, couldn't have been more than 10 to 15 minutes later, my grandmother comes in the room. She had driven from Jackson, Michigan to Detroit, which is about an hour and a half apart because my mom had called her when she was taking me, when she was on her way to take me to the hospital. She had got there. She had she ran through the hospital. She burst through the door. She's out of breath. She's breathing heavy. And she goes, I've been praying for you the whole way here. God told me, you know exactly what to do. You need to say yes to him. And it was the same command two different times from two people who didn't know each other and didn't talk to each other. And I couldn't deny that it was God's way of trying to speak to me. But my grandmother was a church-going grandmother. She was supposed to say something religious. And so I just pushed her away and said, like, leave me alone. That's your God. I just want to die. She prayed for me for about five minutes and then kind of backed away. And there were some other family members that were there. And everyone was thinking, how in the world did we let Daryl get in this position? They're crying. I'm crying. It's so heavy in the room. It feels like 100 pound wet blankets is sitting on top of all of us. And uh, all I know is that I heard this still small voice of what I believe to be God whisper to my heart and say, son, will you say yes to me? And there was something about hearing that that gave me the courage to just try it and mutter out a, a yes. And the moment that I finished saying yes, the heaviness that I felt for years left. My eyes got healed. I could open again. I It felt so good. I didn't know what to do. I just started screaming, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. The doctor runs in the room and goes, what's going on? I was like, I was running from God and I just said yes to him. He goes, let's hurry up and get this guy upstairs. <laughs> True story. And um, that was the moment I put my faith in Christ and uh, it gave me hope. It gave me possibility. It helped me to see opportunity where I was only seeing pain. And that began the process of searching out what those opportunities were. That That's an amazing story. And I think that a lot of people find just kind of like security by connecting with their faith. Um, but I also know that Mental health and specifically religion can sometimes clash a little bit. And I think there are certain religions that view mental health in sort of a negative light. And I know you're a pastor now. And so I wonder, um, do you integrate conversations about um, mental health in your work as a pastor? Because I feel like that's not something that's traditional, um, so is that something that you do? Well, it, I, I do because from the place of sharing my story and, and my journey. Uh, but it, it's really hard for, you know, pastors to to make that a part of the culture because there's so many things that can become a part of what's priority for a, a local congregation or community of people. So there are some that have discussions, but, you know, it, it's very much if we don't talk about anything else, let's talk about our faith and how we live that out. And I don't think that that's ignoring culture or not being relevant. I just think that it's staying in our lane. Um, I do think there's things that we can do if if, it, if a lead pastor or, or someone feels, you know, compelled to do it. If there's a, a huge need within the local community, you see a lot of issues, you might have to call something together. But you'd be surprised about the number of things that people want 
uh, me as a pastor to, to implement or to start. You know, you've got the whole uh, racial equality and systemic oppression that people are, are are really passionate about. And I am I'm a black person, so I'm super passionate about it. They want to use the church for that. They you've got people who are really passionate about politics. They want to use the church to host those discussions. And I think is if we talk about our faith and our beliefs, it empowers people to make the decisions that they feel is best. And so we will let people know like, hey, uh, we do believe in faith. We do believe that God can heal a heart, heal broken wounds, do what he did for me in a psychiatric care facility, give me hope, bring me back to a place of a place of mental stability. But we also believe in counseling. We also believe in breath work. We also believe in journaling. We also believe in talking to a, another person. We also believe in cognitive restructuring. We also believe in breath work. <laughs> and so it's 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 not something we teach. We're not the university of mental health. There's there's people who are more equipped to talk about those issues than we are. Yeah, but we 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 by all means um know that all of it's important to our overall health and wellness journey. Yeah, that's interesting because I I I I find that especially for black people, connecting to your faith really is super important and kind of gives you purpose. It helps guide you. Mm-hmm. Um and I feel like because of how stigmatized mental health is in the black community, um the church is a great place to insert those conversations about mental health in a sort of organic way mm-hmm. to introduce these conversations because they do need to be had. Um, so yeah, I, that's just something I wanted to mention. I, I know that that can be a place of pain for people who are having mental health and mental illness struggles because I've seen it where a person is truly having some mental illness or a real heart challenge. And, and, and some, uh, religious environment it's taboo and it's it's your fault and you're not praying enough or trusting enough um or reading your bible enough and that's not at all what we believe and that's i don't think that's what uh, the majority of christians believe um i just think there's some bad apples out there who who have read and interpreted scripture wrong and don't know what they're talking about. So like, uh, it, my heart hurts for that because, you know, a lot of times people go to places of worship for healing in it. And there's no, there's nothing worse than going to a place where you're trying to get help uh, to only experience more pain and rejection. So I, I wanted to acknowledge that I know that that exists. And I'm, and I'm really sorry if anyone has had to go through that. I've had to go through some church pain when I was younger I got hustled by some pastors. They sold me fake clothes. And um, and it, that's one of the reasons why I was agnostic for the majority of my life. And, um, well, I got to stop saying the majority because I'm getting older now. <laughs> I used to say that a couple of years ago, but I'm probably past the majority <laughs> now. But either way, it was a big part of my, my past. And I recognized that pain and wanted to validate that.
Um, I wanted to take a second because I feel like we've moved a, a little fast, but just to kind of sit in the reality of how painful what you experienced was. Because mm-hmm. um, I know also from personal experience, the pain that comes with really debilitating depression is like inexplainable sometimes. And the pain even that comes from like me now looking back and seeing how much pain I was in, seeing that I went to like, I hurt myself because I was in so much pain. It like hurts me now. So I want to make sure that we're kind of acknowledging that, allowing you to sit with that. Cause I know that's important when you're recovering from that. And also to let the people listening know that like, we're not just talking about this as something that kind of comes and it's, Mm kind of easy to deal with no this shit is really really hard and really really painful and i don't think we talk about that pain enough and i don't think people want to but i do think it's important especially men especially black men because we don't have enough of that we we still have black men and just men and boys in general who feel like they can't feel outwardly and that that hurts my heart so much yeah for sure um it, it, and it's tough too because i speak a lot I, i'm on a lot of podcasts and in-person virtual engagements and uh i tell my story and, and i talk about mental health so often that i do sometimes just brush over the story or don't sit with it enough so i appreciate you creating that space um it's hard for me uh, because I try to reserve me going like fully there till when I'm like, I have to go there. And like, it, you know, um, for instance, like I'm in a, uh, like a recovery organization that I know there's a lot of people there, um, who are struggling with that thing. I really have to sit with it and, and bring myself kind of back to that so that we can have that connection as an audience. And I'm not insensitive to their, where they're at in that journey, because it's not a light matter, right? This is really life and death. And so like, I appreciate you you saying that. And um, and I, I do know what that's like, obviously. Um, it's one of those things where I don't know what would have helped. I don't know what would have helped. I Because a lot of times when you're really depressed, everything sounds cliche. Everything positive sounds cliche and you don't receive it because you're so hurt. You're so wounded. You're so ready to quit that... Uh, people saying, hang in there. You're not alone. Uh, self-care, you're enough. You matter. It just all sounds fictitious and cliche. And it's a really hard place to comfort somebody in that. And and even if you sit with them and just cry with them and don't try to be positive in their life, you know, sometimes that works, but also times that I've been there where people have tried to relate to me and then it, it makes it worse. <laughs> it makes it worse, you know, because then I'm feel bad that I'm making them feel bad. And uh, man, I just all I can say is this: I've been there. I've swallowed the the, the pill bottle and hoped that I didn't wake up the next day. Mm. I remember googling ways to kill myself, and I'm here, and I have three daughters. And my TEDx talk has over a million views. And I get messages every week from all over the world of people saying, thank you. 
And I, all I can say is take it from someone who's living the life that I tried to end, that pain truly is temporary. And wow. your life is worth living. And uh, you're not too small, insignificant, invaluable. You know, you can't look at me now. And you got to look at me then when I was selling drugs, uh, treating women like trash, big ego, no faith, <laughs> uh, a thief, uh, wasn't a good person. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not who I am today. And uh, and so if, 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 if my life can be transformed, so can yours. Yeah. It made me cry. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but I really, like, I, I really appreciate that because we need to be seeing this vulnerability because that's real. It, we too often are seeing such a clean cut, polished version of people. And that's just not real. And it makes, it just makes it difficult to be genuine and be able to show up as your full self. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I really, really appreciate you being so open and vulnerable about this. I lastly, I, I do want to ask you about second chance athletes and just like what that is and how you started it. Yeah. Uh, second chance athletes is a nonprofit organization where we give athletes a second chance to succeed in life without the demands of sports. Uh, by providing them coaching, community, and educational scholarships, um, I I started it because I was just I was noticing that a lot of my peers uh, who were no longer playing college athletics were living their current life as if it was second best to their former life as an athlete, and I would notice that when I asked them, "Hey, well, you know what's going on in your life? You know how are things going?" It was kind of like you know just working going through it but then we start talking about sports and they're like hey you remember when we played so and so you remember when we did this this that and the energy shifted and i was like man this is a terrible way to live you're gonna live your life like your best days are behind you so basically it's just all downhill from here like no there's no way and i noticed that i had did some internal work and had gone through some experience that has helped that not to be how i showed up and that's when I started to figure out, like, okay, how did I get here? And I started and I was like, okay, well, step one, accept. Step two, believe. Step three, I had to discover. Step four, I had to pursue. Step five, I had to persist. And I'll go through those again. But I, I, I had this athlete's transition roadmap. And so I started to blog about it. I wrote a book about it. Um, and it started to, like, share with athletes to see, hey, would this work for them if it worked for me? And and that became really uh, curriculum that we use to help people transition into their next uh, powerful self. And when we say dominate their life after sports. And so those phases, I'll give them to you a little bit slower, is uh, the phases of transition. And this applies to anyone in a season of transition. I've been told uh, my experience is athletics, but I've been told from executives, I've been told from former military veterans that this process of transition is helpful to them. So there's five phases that I went through. The first was the acceptance phase. You, you hear him uh, address this in uh, the five stages of grief, grief uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She talks about the five stages of grief. The last step is get, get to acceptance. What I argue is that 
that you can get to acceptance without having to go through denial and bargaining and those five stages of grief uh, through different aspects, right? I, I don't want to like preach the whole book, but you have to come to a place where you accept that your career is over. You're not still trying to send your demo reel. You're not still trying to talk to people as if you're still an athlete. You have truly closed that chapter. Okay. The second phase, and, and sometimes these don't come Sometimes one comes before the other. So they're not, they're not, you don't have to follow them step by step, uh, but it does help. So the second phase is to believe. Okay. So you close this chapter on the past. Now you have to believe that your future can really be better than your past. So it's all mindset stuff. How do you truly believe that? Well, part of it is you have to dethrone and de-idolize sports because nothing will ever be better than sports if nothing can ever be better than sports. And so you start to bring that off the altar and bring it to a regular career and stop idolizing it. So acceptance, belief, and then discover. It's all about discovering what that purpose is. And this was like a huge part of my chapter. It's probably people's favorite uh, phase that I talk about because so many people want to know what their purpose in life is. And I did too. So I studied every major world religion. I uh, took Simon Sinek's Y course, read Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. I went through leadership treats. I prayed. I did 360 degree assessments. I did all this stuff. And I finally got to this place where I really feel like I know my purpose. And actually, my second TEDx talk is a purpose, a remedy to depression. And I talk about some strategies there. I've got a course that helps people discover their purpose. It's chapter four or five in my book. And um, I, I, I give people 22 uh, purpose discovery questions, and really a, a a process and a lens through which to grasp their purpose. And so it's very helpful. And I believe that your purpose is unique as you are. Your, our, I believe our purpose is not simply just to exist or to uh, leave a legacy for our children or to be a good person and add value. I believe that we should have a purpose statement about our life that is as unique as our fingerprint. Okay, so accept, believe, discover. And then once you figure out what that is, you got to go after it. So it's pursuit and pursuit is all the high performance habits stuff. It's the stuff we know to do as former athletes to get up early, to stay up late, to have routines, to be coachable and teachable, to value teamwork, to invest in yourself. And the fifth phase is persist. So this is like the grit chapter in a little uh, here's where a lot of the mental health practices comes in. Because you cannot burn out on the altar of success and you got to make sure that you are taking care of you while you go pursue your dreams. So that's the phases and uh, and hopefully that added some value. Yeah, great. I, I think that's the service you're providing is so needed. Like I right now, my age group is graduating college and I'm witnessing a lot of my friends who are college athletes realizing like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? Right, they right, don't right. really want to go into like professional sports, right. but they've been doing sports since middle school. So they don't really know what to do. So I can just imagine knowing that something like your service exists would be really comforting and helpful. Yeah, that's just, I'm kind of speechless because I, I know that a lot of people could really benefit from that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, they can get sure. the book for free at lifeaftersportsbook.com. You got to pay for shipping. Uh, and it's literally free. Like if you see my receipt, I make one cent when people do that. Um, or they can just order it the regular way off Amazon. Um, I, I do signed copies from my website. Uh, but it's a great starting place. Somebody said, somebody texted me, one of my friends, and they were like, 
if you had any advice for a former athlete who's really having a hard time struggling like mentally uh, and emotionally, what would you what would you tell them? Because they were trying to like tell them, um, you know, they were trying to get advice from me to tell to their friend. And I was like, I would send them the book. That's why I wrote it. <laughs> like, seriously, I wrote it for that very reason. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then I uh, took a picture of the first page and sent it to him. And it literally says, like, let's get this out the way. There's nothing like sports. And I start going into, you know, uh, all, all the story and the phases. So uh, that's literally why I created it. Um, and sometimes people just like, to 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 dive into the purpose part because they're like okay i understand it's over i'm i'm ready to change so that's where the course that's why i created the course because there was people who are like you know i don't want to read the whole book i just want to like figure out what's next for me and so how do i figure that out and then the, the course was very helpful for that regard okay cool so you gave some ways to find your book um can you let us know some ways that we can just stay up to date with you and the work that you do in general Yes, just follow me on social, right? So Stinson Speaks is like on every platform except for Twitter because somebody took that name on Twitter and it's dstinson97 uh, on Twitter. Uh, so every every other platform, it's uh, Stinson Speaks and uh, my website, DarylStinson.com. You can just reach out, connect with me. And um, I love to just chat and add, add value or be of service in any way that I can. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I think this is going to be such a great conversation to share. I think it's going to help a lot of people. And I'm excited to share all the resources that you have with some of my friends. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and for being so vulnerable and open about your story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. I want to give a huge thank you to Daryl for being on this episode. As some of you know, this month is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, and I wanted to be sure to include a survivor story on the show to acknowledge the fact that tragically suicide is still a huge problem all around the world today. Daryl shared his story with so much vulnerability, and that's really not easy, so please be sure to go show him some light. All of his social media links are in the description if you want to check him out. If you or someone you know is having thoughts about suicide or harming themselves, please know that there is hope, help, and so many resources out there to support you. You are not alone, and if you need some guidance, I will leave some resources as well as the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number below. As always, if you'd like to follow myself and the Students of Mind team, our social media links are always in the description below. Lastly, there will be two weeks off after this episode as I'm taking a bit of a break for my birthday and so I can get some life stuff done. As always, I really appreciate you all being patient with me as I continue to navigate running this show. Thank you again for listening. I hope you resonated with something that you heard today. And I'll see you next time.
Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.